I, I guess the best way to explain it, since I've been in combat and I've been through basic training, it literally feels like a war and I'm trying to stay alive. The bullets, the ammunitions that I have to keep myself alive. There are times where I'm just sick and tired of fighting. I'm about to mm. run out of ammunition. Even if I get out of this war zone and I go home, it's probably going to be the same thing. It's like, okay, you're at the war zone. Now what? Which is kind of similar to when I got back from my first deployment. Hey there, my name is Sean, and this is Suicide Noted. On this podcast, I talk with suicide attempt survivors so that we can hear their stories. Every year around the world, millions of people try to take their own lives, and we almost never talk about it. And when we do talk about it, many of us, including me, are not very good at it. So one of my goals with this podcast is to have more conversations and hopefully better conversations with survivors. Huge thanks to all the survivors who have joined me here on the podcast since we first started back in July of 2020. We are now more than two years old. And of course, thank you to everyone who listens. We really do appreciate it. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk, please reach out. Hello at SuicideNoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at SuicideNoted. And if you check out the show notes, you can find a link where you can leave us a recorded message and a couple of ways in which you can support us financially. And we could use the help. We do want to reach more people and we are doing a handful of things to do just that, including exploring Twitter spaces. I'm just figuring it out, but hopefully that will give us an opportunity to have more conversations, reach more people so they can feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. And we are talking about suicide on this podcast, as the title suggests. So keep that in mind before or as you listen. But I do hope you listen because there is so much to learn. Today, I am talking with Alfred. Alfred lives in California and he is a suicide attempt survivor. Hey, Alfred. How are you? I'm doing all right. I'm doing all right. You know, doing my thing. How are you doing? I'm great. Yeah. Oh, you are? All right. That's a good start. Yeah. I mean, I'm I'm great as things could be. It could be worse, but I'm not complaining. Right. I mean, we 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 know why we're here. Right. Yeah. That's the case. Yeah. I'm an open book. So yeah, I mean, most people that uh, join me here do seem to be open books. I I think I'm attracting people, right? Because they're open and willing to to talk. They reach out. What part of California do you live in? So I grew up in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco Bay Area, and then I recently moved to LA about a year and a half ago during the during COVID, the pandemic. I work for my parents' restaurant right now, so I kind of commute back and forth once a week. So I guess oh. you could say I'm, I'm between both places. Got it. Okay. So, wow, we're talking about suicide. Yeah, my favorite topic. Right. Who's? I mean, isn't it everyone's favorite topic? <laughs> I mean, I guess you kind of have to have like a dark sense of humor to to look at yeah. it that way, but uh, sure. Why in the world would you message me, a stranger, kind of, to talk about something that I would say almost nobody wants to talk about? Yeah, I, I, I think just suicide has this like negative connotation and stigma, just depending on how you look at it. So I apparently have had a history of depression since the sixth grade, which I didn't know until later in life. Uh, it was my friend's mom that kind of noticed it. I kind of asked her like, yeah, well, how come you didn't like tell me anything about it? And she felt it wasn't her place. And then I didn't know anything about it until 11th grade, uh, where I had to do a book report in my junior year in high school on like a medical topic. It could be mental or physiological. So I came across a book in the library like, oh, are you sad or or anxious and don't know about it? And I'm like, uh, yeah, actually. And I read it and it's like, oh, okay. So sounds like I might have depression. That was in 19... 19- 98. That was like the first time I've ever heard of anything. And uh, long story short, they referred me to the school crisis counselor, who's a uh, licensed marriage family therapist working on her hours. I had Kaiser at the time and they referred me. So the official diagnosis at 18 was dysthymia, low level downgrade depression, which is, you know, pretty much what I was like as a kid. Like I wasn't really happy. I wasn't really like sad. I started getting irritable around eighth grade. I didn't know why it kind of made sense. So I'm like, okay, thank God I can, you know, get the help I needed. I was on medication. I was seeing the crisis counselor once a week, you know, I just started learning about depression. Like, you know, I'm like, oh, people kill themselves over this. Like, I don't, 
that's not me. That would never happen. And the quote that kind of stood out in my mind was, you know, suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem. And I'm like, yeah, hey, I agree. Like, I, I expect to kick this thing in the in the bud and, and be over it. But I was very, I think at that time, naive and just kind of idealistic and like, oh, therapy should be this way and that way. When most of us are young, I can't speak for everyone. We're, we, I think we tend to be a little more resilient and hopeful. Yep. That makes sense. You're going to figure it out. You're going to be like those people over there and get on with it. No? Yeah. Um, I mean, I, I guess that the, the influence was, so in my mind, therapy is kind of like what you see on TV, you know, like very Freudian where you sit on a couch and like, it's very analytical and distant and very professional. And that's what I was looking for. So mm-hmm. complete opposite experience. My parents worked a lot, they, uh, you know, typical immigrant story. They worked seven days a week, 12, 14 hour days in the restaurant. So other than my parents providing for me, physiologically, like, you know, asking for money when I needed it, you know, food, shelter, uh, I think emotionally and mentally was the complete opposite. And when I met my first crisis counselor, she, she was very maternal, like very motherly, like kind of like all the things that my mom couldn't feel she was. And I'm like, oh, this is kind of weird as therapy. Like, I didn't think it'd be like this cozy and buddy, buddy. Little did I know uh, that really worked against me because it brought up issues of abandonment and, um, Mm. you know, not being good enough again. I mean, it was kind of like, I, I hate to use the word the necessary evil because it, it did get me through a dark time in my life. And it got me through high school because I think my depression at that point got so bad that I didn't see myself graduating high school. I remember during the time, this was, you know, during Columbine, there were a couple, you know, mass shootings between that time. And, you know, I was hearing thoughts in my head. And, you know, one of the thoughts was like, yeah, you should just get a gun and just like blow everything up and stuff. And I'm like, whoa, where did this come from? And I saw myself like being in jail and stuff. All right. So you didn't just think, I don't think I want to be here anymore. You were also thinking, well, blow some people up. Yeah. Like, it's not like I'm actually hearing a voices. It's just like the thought is so strong that it's just like in the back of my mind. And then I, I remember seeing an interview. They interviewed one. I think it was the Kentucky one where the uh, they caught the shooter and, you know, they asked him like, oh, why did you do it? And he said like, oh, the devil made me do it. Mm-hmm. And I'm like, I mean, I grew up in a Christian school and, you know, so yeah, I, I believe in the whole God and and the devil thing. And it just, I was just like, okay, well, that's ironic. Cause like, that's literally what it feels like, you know, sometimes. Right. Wow. Well, obviously like the struggle was just like not giving into those thoughts and just like pushing those away and just really working on myself. And that's when the suicide became real because it's like, there's this internal struggle that I, it's like an enemy you can't see face or, or anything. So yeah. that's when I decided to join the military in the army because I was, uh, I think it was between my junior and senior year. Honestly, the reason I joined was I don't care if I die. You know, they could send me to war. And obviously this is before 9-11. That mindset. And then two, I was told growing up that I would never amount to anything or there, there were a lot of things I couldn't do. So it's kind of a way like, hey, I wonder if I could do boot camp and just see if I can do it. Yeah, I did. It was nothing like I thought it would. Very more mental than physical. But I think the, re- the th- reason that got me through it was the amount of mental stress I had overcoming depression and all the, uh, you know, the thoughts in my head was a piece of cake compared to basic, you know, that was facing that was a piece of cake compared to being yelled at him. Well, I mean, if you've heard the podcast, you know, this comes up sometimes where, you know, the struggle to just be okay, feel okay, get on with your day. Yeah. I think it it surpasses a lot of things that we tend to think Mm -hmm. are exceptionally difficult. So it's, I'm not surprised. I, I know nothing about the military, despite my haircut. And, um, <laughs> you know, when you say that, I'm, I mean, I'm sure basic is not easy, but yeah, I mean, your, your shit was hard. You said that, uh, and, I, and I don't know if I'm getting this right. The therapist that was somewhat maternal, mm-hmm. you said something about how it was it worked against you or it was more of a curse than a blessing. What did you mean by that? It was a blessing in the sense that, you know, I had something to look forward to and someone to talk to once a week to kind of process my feelings. But had I known about, it's called the dual relationship. Oh, and ironically, I should disclose that uh, I'm a social worker too. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so now all the stuff that I always wondered as, uh, you know, going to therapy, it's stuff that I know now as mm-hmm. a therapist, like, you know, the diagnosis and the dual relationships, ethical and all that stuff. It's not something you normally disclose. It's called informed consent mm-hmm. uh, to a client. I think for myself at that time in my situation, had I known like, oh yeah, we can't be friends, you know, outside of the the therapeutic relationship, I would have definitely approached it and been kept my expectations in check mm-hmm. as opposed to just like, oh, great. I, I found the one person I can talk to you and, and look at through like rose colored filters and everything was going to be okay. 
I don't know if that answers your question. That's kind of why, like, yeah, it's like, mm-hmm. yeah, it helped me work through some problems, but then it's like, oh, at the end, it's like, yeah, thanks for pouring your how on your sleeve or running your emotions, but we can't be friends. You get through high school, you don't blow anyone up. Yeah, no. So I'm like, okay. Ironically, I got you know when you graduate, I figured like, okay, I got through high school. You know, uh, I'm not a statistics because I think at that point, like, wow, suicide was a real thing. Like at that time, the second leading cause of death between 18 to 24 year olds was suicide. So I thought like, okay, hey, I got over that hurdle. And uh, one of the graduation sayings, memento was like, it's just the beginning. Like, no, I know what it meant. Like, it's just the beginning of like a great bright future. And Mm. uh, I remember in the back of my mind, I'm like, well, I'm hoping this isn't just the beginning of like more depression and more like struggles I have to go through. (laughs) So yeah, I, I have a hard time with those sort of, I don't know, pithy platitudes. I get why they exist, but I'm like, get the fuck away from me. Yeah. <laughs> Get out of here. Bullshit. But okay. So you went, so you end up going to what, the army? Uh, the army. Yep. And you go through basic training and you, and you do fine. I ended up dropping out because I went through what's called a uh, one station unit training or delayed entry, which is where uh, you do your basic training the summer of your junior and senior year. And then once you graduate, you go back and finish your job training. And I'm like, uh, yeah, I went through basic and that was horrible. I don't want to do this again. So I told my recruiter like, yeah, I want out. And I got out. And then I wanted to go back in as an officer um, because I watched uh, an officer and a gentleman and it's like, oh, I want to better myself and, you know, like just kind of have my life or experiences count for something. But in order to do that, I had to go back and finish my job training. I mean, it kind of worked out because I got to pick a new job uh, than my original job when I went in. I was originally supposed to be a military police officer, went in as a chaplain's assistant. So I did that. That was September 2000. And then, um, yeah, you know, when 9-11 happened, that was like, oh, okay, great. (laughs) Does that mean everybody's going, everybody's fighting at this point? Everybody was not fighting, but we pretty much knew that, okay, like, like nothing like this has ever happened since World War II. This is when Bill Clinton was in office and I, you know, they were downsizing the military. So they have no choice but to call the reserves a National Guard, which is what I was in. And when I joined at that time, it was like, oh, yeah, my recruiter told me you'll never don't worry, you'll never deploy. You're just going to play army. It's one week in a month, two weeks a year. You do this and it pays for college, which is the other reason I joined too, was literally to pay for college because I was so, uh, I wanted to be as independent from my parents as possible just because I was never close. I think just going through depression, you're just self-reliant and like, it's really hard to depend on other people. Uh, so Clinton's in office when you when you start, but right. Bush is in office for 9-11, obviously. Right. And I it have. makes sense because like, yeah, there's that since Vietnam or Desert Storm 1, there's really no need to have this, you know, big army and stuff. We yeah. that, That's a whole other conversation about military industrial complex, but that's a different podcast. So, and, and respect, re- legitimate respect for your, for your service. Um, Thank you. Yeah. yeah. I mean, of course, did you end up going abroad? Did you fight? Yeah. So that's where the like suicide kind of ties in. So I deployed in uh, February of 2002. Nobody knew how long the reservists were going to be there because they had never been used since world war two was so Long story short, everything, everyone ended up doing a year, regardless if you were active duty and or reservist. And it's not like it was in the late 2000s where they had resources for uh, reservists and guard members coming back. It was like, literally, you do your year, you come back and it's like, okay, you're on your own. Yeah. Where were you? So I was in uh, deployed to Kuwait for a month. Uh, I was in the rear. And then once Baghdad fell, uh, three weeks, and they pushed everybody from the rear uh, to into Iraq. So I was at uh, Camp Victory in Baghdad, or it's actually Balad. Uh, it's an hour north of Baghdad. Yeah. So the first six months, there was no amenities, no, uh, you had to do your own laundry by hand, literally like washboard style. You had to burn your own poop. So they use kerosene. And uh, when they got the contract with um, KBR, that's when like all the contractors came in and dead laundry services and porta potty. So it's like, kind of like, I kid you not, the, when I saw my first porta potty, I was like, that's like the happiest thing I've ever seen. <laughs> you go in as a, I don't know, I don't know all of this terminology. You're, you're, you're not, a, you're not, have, you have no intention or expectations to fight. Right. When you get deployed or leading up to that post 9-11, I would imagine you're fucking terrified. Actually, quite the opposite. I Basically, a lot of suicidal ideations. I didn't know at the time, but they were they were borderline active and passive. Like, do I have a plan? Well, not really. But now that I'm deployed, if I get shot at, okay, well, hey, this is a great way to die. At least my death counts for something and I get buried with honors. And it's not like mm-hmm. some mm-hmm. random suicide because nobody understands what depression is. 
And it's, right. it's kind of ironic because in 2003, 2004, there was no insurgency. There were no roadside bombs. I mean, they were, but not to the extent that, you know, the way the, the news covered it. So a low likelihood that that's going to happen and you're going to die. It was just pretty much unknown. Nobody knew what was going on. Like we did convoys every day, which at that time, you know, fast forward a year later, that's like the worst thing you can do because you're going to be exposed to ambushes and, and roadside bombs. What is there, a convoy? Convoy is just like if you have to uh, go from one base to another, whether to drop off somebody or pick up supplies, you're on the road. And every time you're on the road, you're you're vulnerable. So back then we had soft skin Humvees, which is just like the cloth, which means you could fire a handgun bullet and it would literally go through the Humvee or windshield and just hit you. All right. Weird question here. Did you like it? Sort of day to day, you got some people you're meeting, you're doing convoys, you're burning your shit. I mean, did you like it? I think I liked it up until a point. Honestly, it was uh, once you get settled in a routine, I, I think the hardest thing is just boredom. Once we knew that we were going to be, the, be there a year, it was like counting down the days. It's like, okay, take it one, one day at a time. And then days turn into weeks, weeks turn into months. It, it, it's just being very strategic about it. And just like a lot of people. So a lot of us, what we did was we watched a lot of movies. That was like the main source of like passing time. We did 24-hour operations, so 12 hours on, 12 hours off. And I think the entire year I was there, I had maybe one day off. Yeah, it's like you really like, it's just a whole new experience. It's kind of like you're so tunneled vision to get through the day and like get through the deployment and make it home. You don't have time to think about like, oh my God, am I scared? I, I do remember the thought like uh, someone did ask me like, oh, are, are you scared to die? And I'm like, actually, no. I mean, I'm scared of the way I'm going to die. Like, I hope I don't like lose my leg in a... Uh, my leg gets cut off and I bleed out a slow, long, painful death as opposed to just right. like, I do blow up and it's lights out and like, I didn't know what hit me. And so you, you had said um, when you came back, there was almost no sort of services or way to transition. You were just plopped back here. Right. Not, not because like, oh, we're just going to purposely screw with reservists. It's just like the VA or in the Department of Defense, they, they didn't they, they kind of didn't know, you know, it's just kind of like everything's trial and error. Mm. I think the thing that got me was when I was deployed, everybody's like, oh my God, uh, are you okay? And it's kind of like all the attention and uh, isolation I didn't want. Ironically, I'm in, a, I'm in Iraq and like more people have contacted me and asking how I am than when I was stateside back in California. So it was kind of like, oh, when you get back, we should definitely get together. And, you know, I would love to hear your stories and stuff. So long story short, when I, when I did get back, you know, I, I met a couple of friends, whom, some of whom I've never met through like email and just regular uh, pen paling through snail mail. And uh, I, I think there was a, I was really disappointed that when I got back, it was pretty much the same. Like, yeah, it was like that for maybe a week. And then it was just like, okay, you're back home. You're, you're on your own. And the, my first suicide attempt was, well, one, I was very disillusioned. Like, okay, this is it. I, I spent a year in Iraq and it's like, oh, I'm back to being isolated again. I was supposed to meet up with a, with a, a friend at that time. And she kind of, she didn't stood me up, but she kind of like rescheduled it. And I don't know what happened. Something just set me off. And I'm just like, all right, screw this. And I just ended up taking the rest of my uh, antidepressants. And I'm just kind of like, all right, well, if I wake up, I wake up. If I don't, I, I don't. What's meant to be is meant to be. So I, I took it. And then other than just waking up with like a little grogginess and headache, I was just like, oh, great. I'm still here. I think you're being kind to the VA and the Department of Defense when you say that they didn't, it was trial by error. I, th I think you're being very generous. I probably am. Yeah. Were you able to take your medication that's when the stigma of like, oh, if you're on antidepressants or you're mentally ill, there's something wrong with you. So I did not take medication because I didn't want to like get kicked out of the army. I didn't know like what the reaction would be. Luckily, it worked. I was also suicidal to the point where, you know, if I am that desperate and just feel that despondent, I'd rather kill myself than hurt anybody else. Sure. So there was no question that I was going to like, you know, do like a mass shooting or like, you know, take somebody with me. It's, you know, I, I was cognitive enough that, Hey, I care enough about people that mm -hmm. I'd rather hurt myself than, than anyone else, which is kind of probably why I went into social work and, and, and other stuff. But I think just being, having that tunnel vision of just like the unknown and the adrenaline pumping is probably why I didn't need the medication. Maybe. So just to be clear, and, and again, again, I don't, this is not a knock on, on, on the military at all, but I want to be clear less than 20 or about 20 years ago, if you were diagnosed with certain illnesses mm -hmm. and or on medication for those things, that would preclude you from being in the military? Or was it a sort of don't ask, don't tell kind of thing? Nope. Yeah, it would preclude you. So before you join the military, everybody goes through 
MEPS, which stands for Military Entrance Processing Station. And it's basically, you get this lengthy questionnaire, like, have you ever broken any bones? Have you ever sought counseling? Have you ever attempted suicide? So obviously, like, they don't, like, the recruiters can't lie, right? They, they kind of have to, like, imply certain things. And obviously, if you check yes to that, they're gonna, it's like opening a can of worms. It's like, oh, you sought counseling. And this is just regular counseling, right? It wasn't, and I put yes, right? And I could tell like, oh, okay. So I kind of said, yeah, I was just a school counselor. It wasn't like therapy counseling. Mm, this is what lawyers do in trials. Lawyers yeah. do in the courtroom. Oh, wait. Oh, no, actually what I meant was, yeah. Back then I was also working on getting my pilot's license because I've always loved flying. And uh, when you go for your pilot's license, you have to go through a medical uh, aviation physical. And if you list that you're on antidepressants, they deny your uh, medical license, which is your student pilot. Um, and you have to go to the FAA and kind of appeal and like all that stuff, which even to this wait, day, wait. that's why a lot of pilots don't disclose they're taking antidepressants. Right. This is so bizarre to me. So you're getting penalized for treating yourself. Exactly. Not for not, not, Wait, just to be clear, not for not treating yourself. Right. For yeah. treating yourself with presumably a professional. Do I understand why the military or why uh, flying a plane might be dangerous for somebody? Might be if they have some extreme form of paranoid. I get it, right? There's cases where you're like, not sure if that's a good fit, but that's really the minority. I I don't, that's a really interesting and telling thing you just shared. It's telling of how we think about stuff, how scared we are. Alfred might have be depressed. We can't have him in a plane. Yep. Like, oh my God. Yeah. Like uh, I might, I mean, especially with 9-11, right? I think I even heightened that. Like I might go crazy and fly a plane into a building or no, that's uh, like, I'd rather ditch the plane in, in the ocean than, or, you know, the river than, you know, if my, if I lose an engine or something, you know, like, sure. Yeah. So all the while from high school on, it sounds like you're, you're, you're dealing with, you were, it was called dysthymia, depression of some kind, right? Right. Yeah. And you were trying to treat it. And it sounds like throughout that time you were, do you want to say suicidal or near suicidal? Yeah, near suicidal because yeah, now it's hopeless. It's like, wait, I, I'm getting treatment and I can't do like quote unquote normal things. Like, right. I can't get my pilot's license unless I, for lack of a better word, lie. Right. There was one point I wanted to go in law enforcement. It's like, oh my God forbid, if you're depressed, they don't want to hire you because you might shoot yourself with your own, your own uh, gun. So what that's saying like suicide's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. This is 10 years later, I would say. And it's like, well, it's not really temporary because I'm I'm still struggling. And, and granted, I'm still going to therapy. Uh, you know, I'm learning bits and pieces here and thing. I'm on different medications. Yeah, th- don't get me wrong. Like, uh, I, I felt guilty because it's like, I really have no reason to kill myself because I have it so much better than other people. You know, it's not, I'm not homeless. I have a roof over to live, you know, just, just stuff like that. So I think that kind of compounded a, a lot of things. The, the, well, the idea that because you, you aren't those things that you're feeling shitty because you still feel this way, despite not being homeless. And, and looking back at it now, it's kind of like, that's depression talking. And and I even growing up, yeah, having low self-esteem and, and low self-confidence doesn't help either. So you compound that with depression. And I think the thing that really hit me was, you know, it's not having this depression or whatever I have. That's the worst part is going through it alone as in the sense alone, like not having like a partner. It's kind of like on my bucket list. I know it's cheesy, but I'm 42 now. So just to give you a little history and like, I'm still trying to find like my life partner. Like that's, that's what I want. Like working on myself and finding a relationship that's healthy and, you know, not codependent, not not any of those things. And there's thoughts in my mind where it's like, yeah, but somebody really want to be with someone that has a mental illness, you know, kind of, kind of thing. You just said something that I might make a sort of tagline for the entire podcast, which is going through it. Of course, brutal going through it alone is the real, that's like, I'm not suggesting going through this stuff with a partner is like, becomes easy. Of course not. But it's the aloneness. This comes up for me all the time, personally. Yeah. Personally, like I'll go out with people and this, I realize this is not about me, but, and I'll be around people, some of them friends or acquaintances, and I'll be doing an activity I like. And I'm thinking not all the time, but I'm thinking I'm driving home and I'm like, I'm going home alone. And then that becomes a more of a, it's more symbolic. It's not just that I don't have a partner at home. It's just this large life thing of mostly trying to figure this shit out on your own. And it's almost fucking possible. Yeah. And it doesn't help that all my friends and family are married. Call it the one shot wonder where they married the first person they dated. And it's like, how do you do this? Like, I don't, I don't get this. That's an issue I worked in therapy. And now that I know like, okay, therapists aren't exactly the best dating coaches. Cause there's a, uh, there's a lot that goes in it. 
let's just say now the the thing I should back up. So yes, you know, I'm still ideating. I'm still I'm still suicidal. So now I kind of live my life four years at a time. And and the reason I say that is so I was born on February 29th, which means I get a birthday every four years. You can look at it like the glass half full, uh, glass half empty type of thing. But with depression, I look at it this way. It's like, wait, everybody else gets a birthday once a year. I get one every four years. Wait, so um, you're only 10 years old? I'm only 10 years old. So I, I've had 10 birthdays, but I'm 42. You are very mature. Yeah. <laughs> wow. You don't look 10, but hey, I believe you. So one of the things that always stuck in my mind was my family said, you will never graduate college because I had a tutor growing up. And that's part of the Asian stereotype that, you know, you're supposed to be smart and good at math and not and not need help. And I'm just like, dude, I just need a tutor. Like, I don't get why I need help. I just need help. That's what kind of destroyed my self-confidence. And I remember when I graduated college, it was definitely a struggle. I had had depression to the point where there were weeks I literally could not get out of bed. Like, that's the worst it was to the Mm. point where I was on academic probation. I kind of dug myself out the hole, you know, did therapy again. And then I remember I got my like 10 seconds of happiness when I walked across the stage and got my undergraduate degree. And I remember it was just like, yeah, this is great. And it just felt kind of empty. It's like, okay, I did this huge struggle with depression. And it's like, it just kind of felt like this is it. Like there's got to be more. I mean, I don't know if it's fate, but I graduated in 2008 when the recession started with a theater degree. And it's like, good luck finding a job. (laughs) You went into theater? Yeah, I, I love acting. I think that's one of the saving graces that's kind of kept me alive, so to speak, because growing up, especially in the Asian culture, it's um it's a lot of tough love. It's like, oh, you got a B? Well, you could do better and get an A. Like nothing was ever good enough. Uh, we were not taught, and I use we, I'm generalizing, of course, because I can't speak for every sure. Asian American. It's it's typical to not have self-validation or, you know, have uh, someone tell you like, oh, they're proud of you or they love you. So it was very emotionally stagnant. So mm-hmm. going to the theater, it's like, oh, this is what it's supposed to feel like when it, when this situation happens or this character feels that. That's mm. kind of why I did theater. So That's I gave myself in 2008, it's like, this is it. This this is, and this is what probably 20, going close to like 15, 20 years so again, that thought of like, well, yeah, suicide's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. I'm like, yeah, it doesn't really, really feel temporary. If anything, it feels like really tough. So I gave myself three birthdays to live. So three times 12. So basically 12 years. Because mm. I figured in 12 years, if I can't make myself better and feel happy and be satisfied with life, there's really no point in, in going on. So fast forward to 12 years, which was February 29th, 2020. Let me know what happens in 2020. <laughs> Your timing is astounding. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Your timing is unbelievable. I think for the most part, people who say suicide is a permanent solution to a temporary problem are not the people suffering. I'm sure there are some exceptions to that. I really don't like those people, or at least that comment. I mean, it it makes sense if you don't know if you don't know suicide, right? Like when I first read that, it's like, yeah, that actually makes sense. That's kind of stupid. Why would someone kill themselves? Now I know. We can debate over word choice and semantics. So yes, 20 years is... One could look at that as temporary, but it's go, go through something for 20 years, go through a bad marriage for 20 years and have someone say, oh, are you going to get a divorce? It's just a temporary problem. It's like 20 fucking years. Yeah. Like, That's not so like, temporary, dude. I can't believe I'm 42. Like I remember like being 25 and everything in between was just a blur because, you know, it's just feel, not feeling depressed, trying not to feel depressed, just trying to like be quote unquote feeling normal and trying to do normal things. Where the heck did the time go? Yep. Did you, when you got back from the army, you got back from your service. So I should, you, I should also add, uh, I did another deployment in Iraq in 2008, 2009, when I, when I graduated with a theater degree, it's like, well, I might as well write out the recession and go full time. So I did that. And then I also did another three month deployment in Afghanistan in, uh, 2011 to 2012 when I was active duty. By that point, it's just like, okay, yeah, typical deployment, blah, blah, blah. The last deployment I got shot at and uh in the convoy and had rpgs shot at me and again no was i scared no i was more scared of just failing and letting down my soldiers and getting someone killed that's what i was scared of right you when you came back the first time Mm -hmm. i feel like i just my brain needs a timeline so you came back it's the early 2000s and eventually i know this i know that soon after you come back you have suicide attempt yep take pills and mm-hmm. I didn't ask you this question, and then I want to continue with the timeline, if that's okay. Yeah, when, absolutely. When you, when you woke up, and I know we're going back some years here, mm-hmm. 
I always ask this, or typically ask the question, what's it like to wake up after wanting to die? And you're waking up and you're conscious, presumably maybe groggy, but you're alive. Yeah. Um, disappointment. Honestly, I still, I, like, I remember, I still remember the feeling just disappointed. And it's kind of like, okay, well, I guess God has a purpose for me for being alive. I mean, that's a night that the idealism in me, it's like, cause you know, I believe in God and I, you know, go into a Christian school, it's like, Oh God, God's got a purpose for your life. And you know, all that stuff. So I've heard it before. So I figured that's what it was. So during college, when my depression was really bad, there was the first time I got put in a psych ward. Uh, so I got 5150. Like I was threatening suicide. I was so despondent with therapy, not working. And just like, I don't get it. Like, what are you supposed to do when therapy doesn't work? Um, mm-hmm. so I brought a fake gun in, in my backpack, it was an airsoft gun. And I told my therapist, like, I figured like, well, maybe if I show my therapist that I'm really struggling and desperate, they'll, they'll use, I don't know, they'll escalate or they'll, uh, yeah. extra therapy I need. So obviously she's like, Oh, you have a gun. She's an intern. Yeah. She didn't want to take a chance. So she called her supervisor and it's like, yep. well, I didn't pull right. my gun out. I didn't do anything. I just threatened like, Hey, I got a gun and I'm suicidal. And they're like, well, if he's got a gun, you can't take any chances. You got to call the police and let them handle it, which is what happened. And then they put me in handcuffs and put me in the Sacramento County uh, mental health facility. And I think I've heard it from other uh, other people that you've interviewed on the podcast. And when you're in there, you're like, yep, okay, I, I am definitely not suicidal and I need to get out of here. That's the only thing you're going through is this is a fucking nightmare, uh, as opposed to maybe getting some legit treatment. It's not an easy fix, of course, but that we know by and large is just not what people need. You didn't take the traditional route. So you in your early 20s, college? So because of my deployment, instead of the four or five year planning, it ended up being eight years. So um, mm-hmm. I got 5150 when I was 25, like a year and a half after I got back from my first deployment. And I think a lot of what I was going through, like when I was that suicidal, had my first deployment obviously compounded a lot of stuff because I'm struggling with like, I came back from a war and I kind of felt like, I don't like, I mean, I came back from a long deployment and it just kind of felt like it didn't count for anything because it was just like, okay, you're back home. Good luck. And call yep. me if you need anything. So you have that one attempt. So actually in between then there was a second attempt. So that you had the first attempt and then you're saying you went to the hospital and then there was a second attempt or before the hospital? Uh, right before the hospital. It was really stupid. I was playing basketball with a, with a friend. I remember losing to him. It was one-on-one. And in my mind, I'm like, God, I can't even beat my friend in basketball. Who's not even that great at basketball. Like he's probably like a little skill wise, a little below me, at least, you know, from my perspective. And I remember losing the game and just like, you know what? I don't give a fuck anymore. I'm just, I'm just going to take the rest of my antidepressants a second time, second time's a charm. And, and I don't care what happens. At that time I was on effects or my intent was to take like, I think I had 10 pills left, but I took three and I, I don't know, something told me to stop. I just couldn't go through with it. And then same thing. I woke up again, but yeah, I had the stomach ache. I mean, I'm more than groggy. And I'm just, I remember the physical pain outweighed or, you know, the physical symptoms. It's just like being punched in the face and being dizzy and mm-hmm. body aches and everything like, okay, well, this feels worse than actually being dead. So it was weird. I just like, okay. Uh, it was disappointment. It was also a sense of relief. Like, okay, I, kind of glad I didn't go. And um, when I went to therapy or whoever my therapist was at at the time, I I disclosed it. And I'm like, I mean, come on, I'm really screaming at the top of my lungs here. I really need help. I mean, long story short, it was more or less of the same thing. A couple of therapists that really empathize with me, but because of like a dual relationship, their hands are tied. There's only so much they can do. It's not like, oh, I Mm -hmm. want to adopt you and we should Mm -hmm. hang out and stuff, Mm -hmm. right? Yep. Sometimes therapists suck. Sometimes they're great. But a lot of it is is the, I think, for lack of a better word, a sort of systemic thing where you're limited. There's only so much someone's going to be able to do for you. Your therapist is not going to be magically your partner tomorrow laying in bed next to you. It just doesn't work that way. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I guess the thing that was, uh, you know, kind of confusing is so Goodwill Hunting was my all time favorite movie growing up. Love that movie. Yep. And to me, that's what I thought the therapeutic relationship should be. So as a therapist, as a social worker now, I totally get why those rules are in place. Like, you know, you don't have sex with your therapist and blah, blah, blah. But it should also be dependent on putting the best interest of the patient first or the client first. And it, and it is, but sometimes you just need that, that Will and Sean relationship kind of, kind of thing. Do you think that Sean, great name, by the way, uh, do you think Sean, the therapist played by Robin Williams crossed the line? No, because he wasn't actually a therapist. I mean, if he was a licensed therapist, yes. Again, it's like, that's what the main character Will needed at that time, right? I think another thought kind of occurred to me. The reason that movie also works is there was something special about Will, right? Because he can do these complicated math problems. 
if it was just anybody else going through what he did, it wouldn't have made a great movie. And right. I kind of right. thought about it. It's like, oh, there, there's probably a bunch of people just like Will minus his minus the special ability that are going through, you know, that trauma and turmoil and and hurt. It's just pretty much everyone needs a Will or a, a yeah, like a um, a Sean in their life. And uh, my name is Sean. Wait, yeah. <laughs> wait, wait, wait. What I don't remember. He wasn't licensed. What was he? If he wasn't licensed, he was. He just taught psychology at a community college. Yeah. So when you got out of the hospital, you got out right at Sacramento. Yep. Uh, went back to my therapist and this is a kicker. Like I, my therapist told me she could not continue to be my therapist because like the trust was violated and I had to find a new therapist. And I'm like, well, this is ironic. Like I'm being abandoned again, even though I, I knew what was going on internally. I could have just said, fuck it, whatever. But I think by that point, I'm like, you know what? There's got to be more to my life than, than just a struggle. And if I give up now, I'll kind of never know. And I kind of wanted to throw it back in God's face. It's like, all right, you know what, God, you say you create everybody, you love everybody, they have a purpose. I want to know what my purpose is. Did God answer? It's debatable. I, I would say yes and no. It's like, it just depends how you look at it, right? I think the other thing that really gave me peace was, especially with suicide, you know, that nagging question, like, if you kill yourself, what happens to you? My thing is when I kill myself, I literally just want to go to sleep and never wake up. Um, that's why I slept so much. And I think that's why most people with depression sleep so much. It's like when you sleep, that's when you're at peace. Like, cause your brain's quiet. There's nothing mm-hmm. going on other than, you know, if you have some weird dreams. So I started getting into like life after death podcast and, you know, angels and all this stuff. And that's kind of the difference between learning like religion and spirituality. And that's kind of when I became more spiritual because going to church and stuff, I just didn't feel a connection there either. Just because my viewpoints, pretty much everything I stood for as a social worker now is the opposite of what most churches stand for. And it's just like, I can't compromise my values just to find a community and not for the sake of not feeling isolated. Yeah. Um, you finish college, you get a degree in theater. I know in the next few years, you have at least two, those two more deployments. Yep. And I also know at some point you sort of pivot. That's the sexy word people use these days <laughs> to not being in theater and doing social work. So how does that, what happens there? Okay. So, I mean, this is going to sound really cheesy. When I found God, I guess that was when I was in high school, it was that age old question. Like I just looked in the mirror and like, I call it praying or just talking to the universe or whatever, or God, I'm just like, yeah, what the heck am I supposed to do with my life? And then I kid you not, it just, it just hit me like, oh, I'm supposed to be an actor. That's it. Okay. It it totally made sense because growing up, that's, I grew up on television. Like, uh, yeah, I didn't have parents to grow up on. So you know, I would insert myself like watching the Brady Bunch or Full House and be like, that's kind of the family I want and kind mm. of like connect that way. And I didn't want to pursue acting because when I was studying it, like I was living off Tom Rom- Top Ramen and, you know, the usual starving college lifestyle. And it's like, why would I put myself through that as an actor with the most unstable profession, you know, having depression? Like that's just like a disaster waiting to happen. So that's why I did the opposite. Went full time in the military because guaranteed paycheck, full stability. I didn't have to worry about anything. To make a long story short, the pandemic is like kind of put things into perspective. And it's like, I got nothing else to live for. You know, I've tried the military, which, you know, for lack of a better word, I grew tired of it. It didn't work out. You know, I'm still single. The only thing left is acting and I'm going to be dead in four years anyway. So I have nothing to lose. Well, I plan to be dead in four years, assuming, you know, nothing happens between now, nothing major happens between now and then. So I moved to LA to pursue acting amongst other things and um, just to, you know, find some purpose. I mean, yeah, like, like I've had things happen that I can say, yeah, it is God and it isn't. It's, it's still on the fence. I think on this journey, I'm still trying to figure it out. Well, you, you recently moved to LA for acting. July of 2020. What are you doing? Like in the late 2000s and the rest of the decade after that, like in your 20s and 30s, how are you eating food? Are you working with your, at your parents' restaurant? So between 20 and 30, I was literally just graduate, getting my undergraduate degree and living off student loans, having my parents help me. In my 30s was when I did, uh, I read out the recession, did active duty. Um, so I got out in 2013. Uh, mm-hmm. And between 2013 to 2020, it was like, okay, I'm back to civilian and just kind of trying to figure out what I want to do with my life. There, there was a bit of a regret, like, oh, I should have just stayed in the military because it was easy, right? And I do 20 years and I can get a pension. But then I was single and I'm like, well, I, w- I really want to find someone and settle down and maybe have kids, you mm. know, do the normal thing. So, you know, I, you know, I worked odd jobs here and there. Like I was a school bus driver in 2017. And then I was a background, a security clearance background investigator for 
three years from 2017 to 2020. And again, you know, it was fun. It was great here and there, but it just still felt kind of empty. And I'm like, literally the only thing that I haven't tried, and I don't know if it's like denying my destiny or whatever my purpose is, but it's like, yeah, I really can't kill myself if I haven't really tried every single thing. That was kind of the main reason for um, moving to LA. Actually, it, it, it was the perfect timing because there, you know, I found housing in LA within one weekend, which is like unheard of. Yeah, I was able to get my headshots done. And usually like there's a six month waiting list. I totally get the struggles that actors go through. Like I got an agent within like a week and I was SAG eligible at the, you know, the Screen Actors Guild. So again, so again, like this is all because of the pandemic, right? So it's looking at like the glass half full or half empty. And I'm, right. I'm, I'm on the fence right now. I'm just like, everything's kind of like ambivalent. Yeah, I mean, you know, you said earlier you graduated was 2008 and then and then and then COVID, but you could also argue look at it there is a kind of a flip side here that you had these opportunities that may not have been so readily available, right? Because of COVID. Right. In yeah. LA, dude, that's pretty bold, man. Fuck it, I'm going to LA. L- LA of all places. LA. So you're more of a film TV guy these days or or that's Yeah, bold? so I mean like like when you say like uh did it work like did I find God? So I okay, here's a coincidence. When I was in Afghanistan in 2010, you know, are you familiar with the USO? That's where they like bring celebrities or like cheerleaders mm-hmm. out to like boost morale for the troops. So there was a comedian actor by the name of uh, Steve Byrne. Um, so he's uh, famous for Sullivan and Son on TBS. It was a show a couple of years ago. Mm-hmm. Uh, but long story short, he's half Korean, half white, right? So by that time, I'm like, I'm I'm in Afghanistan. Acting is the far, farthest thing from my mind. So it was him uh, and Peter Billingsley. That's the uh, child actor from A Christmas Story, Ralphie. And then uh, he's like, okay, we need some couple of volunteers to uh, read a scene here. Any takers? And I'm like, I ain't going up there. I'm not looking stupid in front of, you know, a bunch of soldiers, even though I have a theater degree. So I'm just like, I'm just like, okay, whatever. You know, I'm just like looking around. And then Steve goes, hey, you Asian, get up here. And I'm like, (laughs) I'm like the only Asian in the, in, you know, the, you know, 150 people. So I ended up, you know, connecting with them, taking a picture. And uh, when I moved to LA, I uh, reconnected with him. And he's like, yeah, hey. let me know if you need anything, but you know, I didn't want to use it. You know, I wanted to kind of make it on my own, but he basically told me the same thing. as like, Hey, at least you moved to LA. Like most people don't even have the balls to like, you know, take the first step in, in their dreams or, you know. Oh whatever. yeah. So you never became a pilot. I'm still working on my pilot's license. So I never gave up. So I have over a hundred hours and I haven't soloed yet, which if you talk to any pilot, it's kind of like, wait, what? Because the FAA, you only need 40 hours to get your private pilot's license. Most people do it in 60. Right, but um, you're doing it the Alfred way. It's not the most linear, direct way. You do things right. differently. <laughs> For yeah. better or worse, you don't follow that path. I what uh, What thing I'm not clear on is you said you were so... Where does the whole social worker thing come in then? So I've been going to therapy for so long and it's like, I don't get like, like again, if therapy is not working, where else do I turn to? Because all the things I'm reading that treat depression is like medication and therapy, right? It's like, okay, well, that's, that's what I'm doing. I get it. Every therapist has their own way of approaching things. Before theater, I was actually considering uh, psychology as a degree, but you can't mm-hmm. do much unless you have a PhD or a PsyD, mm-hmm. which is way too much schooling. To the Pentagon's defense, when the suicide rates were really high, uh, you know, during 2005, 2008 era, they didn't have enough clinicians in the military to treat the the epidemic of suicide. So they had to contract in civilians to embed them into in the units. And to their credit, they they really did try to destigmatize. So when you go for your security clearance, they take out the psychological issue where, where they ask, have you ever sought treatment for a mental condition? So they took that out. You no longer have to answer that. Mm. And um, these civilians that they embed, they don't take notes or anything. You could literally just go in, vent, because some units are toxic work environments, you know, the whole masculinity, like, oh, yeah. yeah, like, again, to the to the Pentagon's credit, honestly, I mean, I think they did it to not, you know, like, it's on the news every day, right? I'm sure a lot of civilians are thinking like, okay, what the hell is the military doing? So obviously, you know, it's a PR thing also, but. Sure. You can do PR and also do good stuff at the same time, I think. Right. Yeah. So I'm not questioning their motives, but whatever they did, yep, it definitely helped. So the therapist I was seeing was like, you know, if I had to do it over again, I would do social work because you only need a master's degree and, you know, you don't have to have the PhD and you can do a lot more with it. And that's when the light bulb kind of clicked. And it's like, yeah, I'm, I'm still interested in learning the psychology because why am I not better? So I went in, you know, kind of learning the, you know, sitting on the other side of a therapist and it was very, uh, let's, let's just say this. Uh, I called the suicide hotline when I was suicidal. And by that point, when I utilized the suicide hotline, 
I know more tricks and tools to keep myself alive than the person on the other end. And I yeah. get it. The volunteers, their hearts in the right place. The analogy I like to use is that's like someone bleeding out to death or, you know, life and death trauma. And you're having a one year resident doctor trying to mm-hmm. save someone's life. The fact that they're all volunteers or most of them, it tells you everything you need to know. I don't blame them. I don't blame the system. Their heart's in the right place. You know, yeah. they go through whatever training they need to. That kind of con- that kind of reinforces the stigma. It's like, wait, like I, I'm fearing for my life here because I'm like really suicidal. And the best you can do is give me a volunteer on, on the crisis line. Right. And you also know that you use certain things you can't say. Right. Yep. So uh, did you actually become a social worker? I did. Yeah. So I got my MSW. And, and social work is one of those professions where you don't have to be licensed. So there's uh, there's LCSWs, which are licensed clinical social workers. And then there are just MSWs, which means you can do case management. You can do uh, you can do everything but go into private practice and counsel people on your own because you're not licensed or you have to work under someone that's licensed. When you went back to LA though, you kind of do wearing two hats, right? I want to be an actor and I'm also going to be a social worker. Right, which kind of works out because uh, it's not like, most 18 to 20 year olds moving to LA and just having this idea like, oh, I'm just going to make it. I can choose to have a stable job and do acting on the side if I want to, which is ideal situation. Uh, I, I learned a lot as a, as a social worker. And um, yeah, the caveat that I wanted to add was, um, oh. remember, I said that I'm going to give myself three birthdays. And if nothing major happens, like I'm done because like in 12 years, if I can't find meaning or happiness or fix myself, then there's really no point. So, you know, February 29, 2020, I'm just mm-hmm. like, I, I could have off myself. That was the, the deal I made, but I'm like, you know what? I'm going to give myself four more years because again, I refuse to believe that this is it. Like, like there's got to be more to life than, than what I'm going through. So four more years uh, is one leap year. You mean? Yeah. So the next leap year, which is 2024. So I've had episodes between now and then where I'm just like, all right, a year and a half of this hell hole and I'm done. I get it. I was in a crisis moment, you know, not thinking straight, um, you know, it doesn't last for more than a couple hours. And I'm just like, that card's mm. still on the table if I choose to exercise it. It's kind of weird, right? Because I just have this off the wall birthday and it's like, great. Lucky me. Yeah. Why did you put suicide in Spotify or Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts? Because I wanted to get better. I'm just like, if I talk about suicide in the therapy session, I was like, oh my God, in my mind, I honestly feel therapists care more about the person killing themselves than the actual person. And mm. I get it. Like, I would never do anything to jeopardize their license or livelihood or, or you know, you know, because they got to put food on the table. It's just like, you know, I, I just need a place to talk about. Oh, I even tried to do a suicide uh, group therapy support. But at that time when I went, it was only for survivors of suicide and not suicide attempt. Uh, if you attempted suicide, it was for lost survivors. Right. And I'm like, well, there's an irony. Like, where am I supposed to get the support? So I'm just like, I want to learn as much about suicide, like the history of it, why people do it. I mean, not only does it make me a better clinician if I choose to go the social work route, but hey, you know what? Maybe I'll learn something about myself and, you know, a light bulb will, will kick on. And uh, there's not a lot of books on suicide either. I did that route. So I'm like, all right, let's search right. suicide in a podcast and see what happens. And yours was one of like the top three or five that came up. And it was refreshing because it's literally just having a discussion about suicide and not, you know, not being like over analytical about it. And it was a top three or five, but it was clearly the best. We could yeah. both agree on that. No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. How yep. many people do you have in your life to talk to? really talk to? I would say one or two, which ironically, that's kind of all you need because I think they did a study where like most people only like, yeah, people have a lot of like a social circle and social media and how many followers you have, but how many people actually have like one or two people they can really like pour their heart out. Yeah. I, I met a really good friend of mine. Uh, you know, she's a producer in, in LA again, ironically, you know, I wouldn't have met her if I didn't move to LA. We really just are able just to talk about really deep things and stuff. Um, she was a suicide attempt attempty herself. Um, so, you know, she kind of gets it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, I have a best friend I grew up with since high school. So he's seen my deployment. He's seen me being suicidal. He visited me when I was in the, when I was 5150. So he's just a friend. He just doesn't know what to do when I'm in that state, right? He doesn't know what to say or do. Um, and I think the most telling things a lot of your interviewees say is just, you just have to be there. Just sit there with the person. You don't have to say anything. You agree? Oh, yeah. Yeah, because there were times where I was suicidal and I just wanted to come over to my friend's house. If I'm going to be depressed, I'd rather be depressed with my friend than trying to face it, isolating myself and, and doing it myself. And that's kind of like dangerous suicide is when you're in that state and you're isolated and you don't have anybody, it definitely compounds the um, the likelihood of going through a suicide attempt than just having someone there sitting with you. 
not even sitting with you, just like, hey, uh, I'm just going to veg out and watch TV and they're just doing their own thing. But, you know, you guys are in the same house or, or whatever. What's the odds that you're going to be alive in March of 2024? I ask myself that every day. I, I definitely go back and forth, right? Because I kind of want to get to the point where I want to live as much of a normal life as possible. And then if God does exist, or I meet my maker and you know nothing extraordinary happened, it's like, this is it. So there's a good likelihood I'm still going to be around because I kind of just feel I'm starting my career in Hollywood or whatever it is I'm supposed to do. And if I off myself, I'll never know. Don't get me wrong. There are days where for those second moments where I'm like, God, I wish I wasn't here. But I also think it's also, it's kind of like a form of self-love, right? It's like, if I love myself enough, why put myself, I I guess the analogy I I like to use is, you know, if a horse breaks their leg, the immediate action is you got to euthanize them because they'll never like be a racehorse again. Or Mm -hmm. if a deer gets hit by a car and they're suffering, what's the first thing people do? They take a gun and shoot them and put them out of their misery. And it's kind of that duality of why am I putting myself through, through this, whatever this is like, this is being everything that I, I I mentioned, like, I I guess the best way to explain it, since I've been in combat and I've been through basic training, it literally feels like a war, like in my Mm. head and I'm trying to stay alive and the bullets, the ammunitions that I have to keep myself alive. You know, like I go see a movie by myself. I mean, I love movies. I love acting. Like that's, that's, that's one of my bullets. I've gotten to the point where it's like, you know what? There are times where I'm just sick and tired of fighting. I'm about to Mm. run out of ammunition. Even if I get out of this war zone and I go home, it's probably going to be the same thing. It's like, okay, you're out the war zone. Now what? Which is kind of similar to when I you know, got back from my first deployment. Yeah, it, it, it really could go either way. The deal that I made myself is like, okay, between now and the next February 29th, if nothing major happens, mm-hmm. it's just cause for like, okay, I'm done. Because technically I'm not supposed to be here. Like I was supposed to be dead February 29th of last year, but I had enough wherewithal to be like, you know what? I just can't accept that. This is it. There's got to be more. So I'm giving myself four years and just kind of like, all right, let's rubber hit the road and do everything I can to not kill myself. So I guess my my thing is, it's like my my prime directive is like, you can't honestly consider killing yourself if you haven't tried every single thing yet. I kind of got a year, whenever my next birthday is, just hold my uh, feet to the fire to that. LA, yeah. LA, yep. Um, I still working on my pilot's license, right? I bought some land up in the LA area. So my dream is to like kind of build the house that I've always wanted. So, you know, like all those cards are on the table, right? So I, I really can't say yes or no. It just, it mm-hmm. all right. Two more questions. And then I'll just think, and this sort of came up while we were talking, but there are any other myths that you would like to dispel? Yeah. I think, I think the most common one is like, oh, suicide is a selfish act. And my thing is like, wait, is it selfish for you or them? Is it selfish because you don't want to feel shitty that, you know, your friend or your whoever killed themselves? Cause think about it this way. You can't see the suffering or the pain or whatever that person is going through. It's like seeing that deer on the road. When you hit the deer and that deer is struggling to live, are you going to try to fix them or, you know, make them better? Or are you just going to put them out of their misery? So that's one. The other myth too, it's like people make suicide. It's like, oh my God, you just can't kill yourself. Like life is sacred. Well, when you think about it, people die driving every day. Like it, it happens so often. You don't hear about it in the news because it's so uh, desensitized. And I, I bargained with myself where it's like, you know what, if people respected life a little more and they really valued other people, stop doing a DUI or, or, or treat driving like, you know, if you can literally kill someone driving a car. When I'm suicidal, I don't go for a drive. I go for a walk because I don't want to be in that state of mind where, yeah, I'm seeing the road, but I'm not really seeing the road because I'm so in my head. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And I would never fly in that state too, which is ironically again, like, oh, okay, you're going to, the FAA is going to deny me my medical. Suicide is this, uh, oh my God, this taboo thing, but yet- People die every day from stupid stuff. Mm. On or off the record, do you think anything I'm doing with this podcast, and I'm asking you as suicide attempt survivor and social worker and whatever else, is irresponsible, immoral, unethical? No, I think you are doing a phenomenal thing. Because honestly, like finding our podcast was like a valve to release all this air that, you know, this tension that was just built up, right? It's like, we can talk about suicide and I don't have to worry about any consequences. Like I don't have to worry about like, oh my God, someone's going to put a 5150 on me and put me in the psych ward or report me. So I tried talking to my friend about suicide and I thought she was my best friend at the time. I don't know if it was her obviously, but it got to the point where the police knocked on my door to do a welfare check. And I'm like, dude, that's not why I told you why I'm suicidal. Right. It's like betraying my trust. Right. 
right yeah, just stuff like that right like i i yeah. like i don't i really like this is the first time i've i've talked to you one-on-one other than listening to your podcast but mm. there's that trust that i already feel with you where it's like i know nothing bad or i'm not going to have any negative consequences by just being literally an open book with you we talk there's a unique relationship or dynamic we may never talk again we might we might yeah um is it, it's a little weird the podcast that you're doing you're literally giving people a voice that don't feel like they have a voice. And that's also leaving a legacy behind. So God forbid, if anything happens and someone offs herself, offs herself, including myself, like this podcast that you and I did, it will be memorialized in time forever. Wow. I hadn't thought about it like that. that. Just like that. Yeah, yeah, no, I really haven't. I, it's interesting, right? Because the, the nature of podcasts, unless something changes radically in the interwebs, like it is kind of permanent-ish. Yeah. God forbid if someone does commit suicide and obviously I I don't talk to my friends or family because of the examples I used. There's always that question like why did they do it? Right. Well, assuming I signed a release or you know they they knew I did this podcast, they could listen to it and kind of get like a glimmer of understanding of like, oh, okay. I still don't get it, but at least like, hey, I had this, you know, hour-long podcast that I did with you to kind of open the door for them to a world of of suicidality that they most people don't know. But mm-hmm. I guarantee you the person that's actually going through suicidality, they just want, they just don't want to feel alone and, and someone to listen to them. And, and that's you. And uh, mm-hmm. I, I mean, like you're doing your part in doing that. In my opinion, I think it's a, a greater good than, uh, than not. Because uh, honestly, when I find your podcast, I'm just like, holy shit. It's like, this is literally like the first podcast of its kind. I'll give myself credit, but I, it's just so weird to me that it didn't exist because it's a really straightforward concept. The stakes are rather high with people I'm talking to often, and it's, it's fairly common. And you would think all those things, you'd be like, oh, there, there, there'll be a lot of podcasts about that because there's podcasts about, you know, how to groom your cat. Yeah, exactly. It's like, I don't, I'm cool. I, I feel comfortable in the role. I'm glad I did it. I think I'm decent at it. But you're like, nobody else is doing that. No, you're right. Some people do other stuff, but it's a little different, right? It's an expert or it's a combination of some suicide and depression. And you know, those are great. And I think studies and, and statistics show that, you know, the, the other myth is like, oh, if you talk about suicide, it's going to make the person go through with it. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I mean, if you look at the data, that's, it, it shows that if that's not true. You know, right. Yeah. But the data suggests says it's not true. I mean, as much as that can be measured. Right. There's always exceptions. Who knows? Right. But, you're going to have but an by and large. Yep. These conversations do not. To put this into perspective, the second the second podcast you did, there was a there was a gentleman who said like, yeah, he's planning on killing himself if you know in, in a year or so. And I remember, oh, that's ironic. That's kind of like my situation. I still think about him. I wonder if he's still alive or how's he doing. I'm pretty sure he's gone. I totally get where he was coming from. Just as an empathetic person, when you guys were interviewing, my the thought that was going through my hand was like, thank God because I can just imagine the pain and suffering that he's going through and. If he's dead, and I'm not talking about like what happens to us after we die, like the whole afterlife. Yeah. But he he's not suffering anymore. That's how I look at it. That 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 that's the myth. It's like, uh, is it mm. selfish? I don't know. Is it selfish to keep someone alive and have them keep suffering? And there's no mm. right. There's this is trial and error. There's no cure. Whether there's no guarantee you're going to fix it. And you're not even willing to listen. Right. Yeah. You got to keep them alive because well, it's it's selfish or it's a permanent pro- permanent solution. Blah blah blah. And you're and you're checking in once every three months, and you're not even really listening very well. That seems fucked up. Um, what's on your day? What's your day like? So I'm going to dinner with uh, my family later on, and then uh, I got a date tomorrow because I fly back to California. And uh, so you know, there, there's hope in that. So uh, we've been messaging a lot. Yeah, no, I I really appreciate what you're doing, and I I wanted to thank you for that. Thank you, man. I appreciate those words. Yeah. And let's we'll stay alive for at least a little while longer. Absolutely. Oh, man. Have a good day. Hope your date goes well. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Um, and, you know, thank you for having me on. I, I really appreciate it. You got it, bud. I'll talk to you soon. Have a good day. Enjoy talk Chicago. Take care. Thanks. Bye. Bye. As always, thanks so much for listening and all of your support. And special thanks to Alfred out in California. Thank you, Alfred. If you are a suicide attempt survivor and you'd like to talk please reach out. Hello at suicidenoted.com on Facebook or Twitter at Suicide Noted. If you check the show notes, you can find a link where you can leave us a recorded message 
as well. And oh, by the way, we're exploring some other things on social media. We're starting in Twitter spaces. So if you follow Suicide Noted on Twitter, you can learn more about that. We're playing around with some things, but uh, want to continue reaching more people so they can feel a little less shitty and a little less alone. That is all for episode number 120. Stay strong. Do the best you can. I'll talk to you soon.